Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Psalm chapter 93. Beginning at verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, everyone. Uh, There's a little uh, outline with the psalm and um, my main points. I'd like to keep that in front of you. Uh, The psalm's about God as king over the world. And, uh, of course, that's a big theme that runs right through the Bible and culminates with the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But the notion of royalty and kingdoms, which is quite central, isn't it, to the Bible and the gospel message, is sometimes thought to be just out of date, basically. No longer connects with people in our liberal democracies. We've kind of made other arrangements. And there are, um, other, of course, other ways to express the timeless message of the gospel outside of royalty and kingdoms. So some would say we need to contextualise the message. I mean, the Gospel of John does talk about the kingdom, but mainly about eternal life. Paul talks differently in different contexts when he talks to the Corinthians or the Ephesians. It's a different frame of reference. And our missions units at college rightly stress the importance of using forms of thought that connect with the audience, contextualising the gospel. So is the message of this psalm about the eternal reign of God now obsolete in our context? Might get an early mark from the sermon, if it is. Uh, But in honour of Reese's socks, which have the uh, Union (laughs) Jack... Uh, I'd like to think briefly about uh, Queen Elizabeth's death last month, which kind of took everyone by surprise, didn't it? Uh, You wouldn't think we were all royalists, but uh, she died at the age of 96, serving some 70 years. Uh, Her reign from 52 to 2022 spanned 15 UK prime ministers from Winston Churchill and Liz Truss, uh, covered a multitude of conflicts, got us through the Cold War, the UK's entry into the European Union, the UK's exit from the European <laughs> Union. Uh, most importantly, probably, she, trans, uh, she transferred the uh, colonial British Empire to the Commonwealth of Nations, which today is a remarkably harmonious grouping, 56 countries, 2.5 billion people. So it was fascinating, wasn't it, to read the different eulogies for Queen Elizabeth II The UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, or I'm not sure if she's still the Prime Minister, I need to check that a bit later, um, summed up her significance in these words. She said, Her Majesty provided us with the stability and strength that we all needed. So Queen Elizabeth was celebrated for Her Majesty, her strength, her longevity, her stability, 
and the extent of her reign across a good third of the world. So taking a look at our psalm, it's striking that the same kind of things are said about God. God is our king, robed in majesty. It says in verse 1, twice, he's armed with strength. His reign was established long ago. It's from all eternity and it's uh, firm and secure and stable. So maybe after all, uh, kingship and uh, royal things still connect. Uh, Let's see. Psalm 93 tells us three things about God's reign, and I think they're a good uh, message to the Valor Victorians, as I like to call them, um, who are among us. So hands up if you are finishing up, or hopefully. There's quite a few of you. Yep. So the first thing is that we should celebrate God's long, powerful and majestic reign. I mean, that's basically what we did with Queen Elizabeth. And that's really the point of verses 1 and 2. So if you've got your outline there, have a look. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. So God's reign is majestic. It's powerful. It's fixed. It's steady, stable, and its realm covers the whole earth. Uh, But these verses tell us about the rule of God, not just to inform us, but to bring us to praise and adoration of that rule. Because verse 2, it switches from describing God's reign in verse 1 to actually addressing God. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. And I think this is the normal human response to something majestic and awe-inspiring. So if you've ever been to Uluru or the Grand Canyon or the Alps or ever been to a, a, a grand final at the G or something like that. It's, it's the kind of thing that fills you with awe and adoration and admiration. And it's best done in the group, isn't it? I really feel sorry for someone visiting something like the Grand Canyon with no one to share it with. And that's really what we're after in these verses. We should celebrate together God's long, powerful and majestic reign. Verse 1 envisages God as an awesome king enthroned over the world. And in verse 2, we're to praise him as the sovereign over our world and over our lives in that domain. But something happens as we move to verse 3. So the psalmist employs a kind of literary device. And by now you've smelt the roses in your classes and you know what literary devices are. So you've got personification and similes and metaphors and inclusios and hyperbole wordplay, all of these things kind of uh, rattle around. Hopefully you'll never use those words in a sermon. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's one here you might not have known about, and I'm not even sure if I'm right, but what I think here (laughs) we have between verses 2 and 3 is what is sometimes called in Greek exegesis an anakaluthon. So it's a construction where there's no connective, but it's so obvious it doesn't need to be said. So what's the connection between verses 2 and verse uh, verse 3? I think the response is clear, isn't it? So when we get to the end of verse 2, we're celebrating God's reign. He's in charge, but the seas are roaring. So there's a kind of, uh, well, that may, may be the case. That's not my experience. The lack of connection Between verses 2 and 3, this is a new literary device I'm calling a silent but deafening segue. 
And I think it, it's kind of the pointy end of the problem of evil. You know how in one of Scott's classes, he probably doesn't do this, but he could, I'm sure, he'd say to you that, uh, look, the problem of evil is this. If God is God, he is not good. And if God is good, he is not God. Yep. Did you follow that? You can think about it later. <laughs> but it's, it, the real problem is if God reigns, it doesn't seem like he's good because the world in so many ways is in a mess. So it's kind of the sharp, pointy end of the problem of evil. Look at the seas in verse 3. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. And certainly the seas in our world seem to be getting stormier. Um, Those finishing in 22 um, faced a much more difficult time at college than those finishing at 19, in 19, 2019 and probably a more difficult time transitioning into the next phase of their work and life. So we do live, in the last few years certainly, it's been clear in our country and around the world, in a chaotic world. We've had fires and then we had a pandemic. Currently we're having floods. The church is in a credibility crisis over child abuse, sexual scandals, bullying, disputes over sexuality and gender, The world itself has an anger management problem. We're facing a recession. The cost of living is going up. You won't find a job, etc. So it's 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 pretty grim, really. And I think stormy seas is um, a pretty good description how many people are feeling. And our hearts go out to the likes of Marinus as he told us the struggles he's had in the last few years. And he's certainly not alone. Your throne was established long ago, O Lord, from all eternity. But the seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. So verses 1 and 2 instruct us to celebrate God's long, powerful and majestic reign. Verses 3 and 4, thankfully, reassure us that God rules over the most powerful and hostile forces on earth. So verse 3 is a kind of dramatic description of the majestic and frightening force of the seas, mounting up with roaring, crashing waves on the shore. Now, the exact referent of these noisy seas and pounding waves is is disputed. By now, you know that lots of things are disputed uh, when, when you read the Bible closely. There are several options. Commentators disagree, and I won't be sitting with Jill or Andy at lunch for fear of correction. (laughs) These are the options, okay? I'm just going to give the options and then I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. (laughs) The Lord, not some pagan god, is sovereign over the chaotic forces of nature. Apparently in the ancient Near East there were myths about Baal and Canaanite uh, gods who fought the sea and came out on top. Yep. And maybe this is saying, look, It's not Baal who's mightier than the sea, it's God. The sea is not mythological, it's a force of nature under God's power. Or it's a reference to creation because at the time of creation, God's word controlled the powerful and chaotic waters on the earth to form the seas. So again, you've got that kind of imagery in the Bible, the kind of primeval chaos which the Lord conquered at creation. Or... It's a reference to Israel's enemies and uh, the seas here are representative of those who are uh, um, wanting to usurp 
the Lord's sovereignty. Or it's a reference to the Exodus redemption and the parting of the Red Sea. Or maybe, this is where I want to land, it's a reference to hostility to God and his people in general. So I think the psalmist praises the might of the Lord, which is greater than the seas with their raging waves and roaring noise. Because sometimes in the Old Testament, the imagery of roaring waves and sea can be an emblem of hostility. For example, in Isaiah 17, it says, Woe to the many nations that rage, that rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar, they roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roaring of surging waters, when, they, he, when he rebukes them, they flee far away, driven before him like the chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. So I think probably what we've got here is a general ambiguous reference to the turmoil and chaos that has characterised human lives for thousands of years and has really caught up with us in many ways in the last few years here. I think the figurative language is flexible and I actually think that Psalms are very useful because they're so ambiguous at times. So you can plug your own enemies in when you read a Psalm about having victory over enemies. You can plug your own illness in when you read about some illness. You can plug your own sin in when you need to confess your sin. And here you can plug your own chaos in and uh, to hear about the pounding of the waves, which probably represents something like the power of death and destruction. However, the good news is that verse 3 presents a hostile scene with mighty and chaotic waters of nature. But verse 4 is the answer to verse 3. So it's another case of anacoluthon. So if you want to put a but before verse 3, you could put a yet before verse 4. Yet, mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The Lord is mightier than the forces of chaos and destruction. Uh, whether we think of them as mythological beings or human kingdoms or economic collapse or looming exams or whatever. So, friends, in part, the psalm gives us an encouragement by reminding us that God's people have always faced the roaring seas and God's people have always confessed the kingship of God nonetheless. So verse 4 is a great encouragement, I think. The stormy seas rage, yet... The Lord on high is mighty. God rules over the most powerful and hostile forces on earth. Uh, but there's another unwritten segue between verses 4 and verse 5. At the end of verse 4, you kind of think, well, that's comforting. But what are we going to do in the meantime? Because we're sort of waiting for the full manifestation of God's rule to be evident. So there's a, there's a third piece of advice uh, in particular for those leaving us at the end of this year. Not only should we celebrate God's long, powerful and majestic reign because God rules over the most powerful forces on earth, but we're to live as his loyal subjects, verse 5, by trusting in his word and enjoying his holy presence. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. So this verse fills out our understanding of the kingdom of God, which was a series that Reese started 
And uh, Diane continued yesterday, if you were around. So the Lord reigns from his eternal holy throne with majesty, power and faithfulness. He's established his authority over creation. He's the king over all. His reign is majestic and powerful. And here he's enthroned in holiness and he rules by decrees. So friends, not only is the Lord majestic and powerful, he's also trustworthy in what he says. Not only does his realm stand firm, so do his statutes stand firm. So the psalm closes with praise for the Lord's laws and his temple. It says, your testimonies, Lord, your statutes stand firm. I think uh, there's a number of terms in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, which are kind of synonyms for God's word. So in Psalm 119, You'll read about uh, God's word, his rules, his commandments, his precepts, his ways, his laws, his statutes. And our task as subjects of the kingdom is not only to know them, um, after all we've been teaching you all these years, but to trust them, to believe them, to stand firm just as they stand firm, to obey them. And the key to doing that is the last part of the verse recognising that holiness adorns God's house for endless days. Now, holiness can refer to moral purity or it can refer to his separateness. And I think that's what we've got in mind here. So holiness adorns God's house is a way of saying nothing is like the house of God. Uh, Like him, his house is distinct and uniquely beautiful in its purity and glory. So each of us have a task. We've been trained for God's mission, but we're never to forget that our place is in God's presence and in his house. So the goal of your ministry, friends, as is mine, is to bring people into God's temple and we have to live in God's temple to make that message authentic and to survive as God's subjects. So verse 5 is really an invitation to trust God and to enjoy God in the light of his eternal reign. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. Now, Psalms like these were used in Israel's worship to praise God's sovereignty, as we've seen, but they're also kind of prophetic pictures of the consummation of the ages when the final manifestation of God's reign will be established through his Messiah. I think the logic of Psalm 93 points to Jesus. It's a kind of now and not yet psalm. God does reign majestically and powerfully against all opposition, but we live in a time when that reign is not evident to everyone and not fully installed on earth. The Lord reigns eternally is both a present reality for all believers and a future hope for the world. And the psalm, as we saw, kind of raises a tension between the stormy chaos of our world and the fact of God's eternal reign. And in the end, it points beyond itself to the coming of the kingdom of God through the Lord Jesus and its final consummation at the end of time. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. The end will come when the Lord Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When he has done this, then the son himself will will be made subject to him who put everything under him, 
so that God might be all in all. We long for that day and we're to live in the light of that day now. Come Lord Jesus. 